HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Welcome to Cooking Issues. I am Dave Arnold, your host of Cooking Issues on the Heritage Radio Network, coming to you approximately from 12 to 12.45 every Tuesday here in the studio today with Nastasha the Hammer Lopez. Cooking Issues, as always, she's the hammer. How are you doing, Nastasha? I'm fine. How are you? Haven't seen you. How was your uh, holiday weekend? It was good. Yeah? Uh-huh. I went to Fire Island. Oh, nice. How was that? Fine. Did you get poison ivy? Nope. No, you, uh, Fire Island is a, uh, they should light, uh, I'm not going to say, that, well, obviously they should not light any fires there, but they should get rid of the, some of that poison ivy. The worst case poison ivy I think I've ever had, I had in Fire Island. In fact, the doctor said it was the worst case of poison ivy that he had seen in, in at least five or six years of practice. My entire arm swelled up. I looked like, uh, the, the incre- if the Incredible Hulk was bright red instead of green, it looked like I had one giant Hulk arm. But it was instead of, like, muscle, it was a giant sack of water. It's gross. Well, because they had these blueberries, you see, that are growing uh, all on Fire Island. I picked all these delicious blueberries and luckily was able to make possibly the most delicious blueberry pie I've ever made uh, before my arms swelled up into a giant balloon. So I, I guess it was worth it. <laughs> what do you think? I don't know. Did everybody enjoy it? Oh, they loved it. They then, loved then, it. There you go. That was, that was a long time ago. That was in uh, 2001. A long time ago. That's the last time I was at Fire Island. They still have uh, deer whose fur being eaten off by mange. Like there was one that was following me. It was really freaked out. Yeah, but was it all gross looking? I didn't. I walked the other way. I didn't look at it. It was at night. Um, yeah. Well, yeah. look during the day. They're yeah. mangy and disgusting. Oof. Vermin. Anyway, uh, call in all of your cooking-related questions to 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128. Coming to you live from Bushwick today. So, uh, today is... Here's some, like... Like an airplane in the background? Yeah, it's weird. Yeah. Today is the last of my week-long, my days of week-long raw vegan diet. I have been on a raw vegan diet since Tuesday of last week. Uh, Tuesday, right after we finished the low-temperature sous vide class. So we put ourselves into a meat coma in the low-temp sous vide class, eating like a bazillion short ribs. And then right after, I went on uh, raw vegan. And, uh, you know, because... For those of you that haven't heard, I made a bet on this radio show that no one could produce a raw vegan chocolate bar that I would uh, even think tasted remotely of chocolate. Um, because, frankly, I figured it's impossible because you have to roast chocolate, you see. So, like, chocolate beans, right? First of all, the, the, you know, the, the, 
the, you know, the, the cacao, right? It comes down, it ferments. So often right there in the fermentation process, it gets above the arbitrary number of 118 or whatever you're going to choose for something Fahrenheit for something to be raw. Now, it's kind of odd that you could possibly uh, <laughs> overcome what makes it raw during a fermentation process since the raw thing is supposed to keep the enzymes alive and it's actually life, but, you know, bacteria and fermentation taking place that is causing this temperature rise. But we'll leave that aside. So... Often the temperature will go above 118 right there, but that can be controlled. But then there's a step of roasting of chocolate where it's roasted, and that's where a lot of the characteristic flavors are developed. So I'm like, well, you can't do that. So, hey, what the heck? You can't have real real raw chocolate. It's not going to taste like chocolate because crap ain't been roasted. So our former intern, Grace, brings me this stuff, fine and raw chocolate, and I tasted it. And I had to agree that although it was not you know, anywhere near my favorite chocolate or, you know, even a chocolate that I would choose to eat on a normal basis. Its texture was wrong, et cetera, et cetera. It was a little soft. You remember the chocolate, right? Mm-hmm. It still tasted like chocolate, though. Yeah. I mean, you could it eat it. It wasn't good. I mean, I could eat it, though. Mm-hmm. In other words, like, I've, I felt like I lost a bet. So then the problem was, now I can't welch. Like, it's impossible for me to welch. It's, like, you know, not an acceptable situation. So I had to do it. The problem was finding a one-week period where I wasn't obliged to do a demonstration where I had to cook. And so this last week, right after that, uh, right after the sous vide class, was the only week we had where that was possible. So I've been raw vegan uh, for a week, and I break my raw vegan fast uh, tonight when I land in Austin, Texas. And I think I'm going to eat an entire cow when I get there. <laughs> you know, actually, it's not the meat that I miss the most. It's, it's uh, like bread. And like starch. I mean, think about it. No rice, no bread, no starch. Um, you know, anyway, so I'll, I'll share before we get into the questions. Maybe I'll share a little bit of the, although I, I'm going to post on it hopefully today or tomorrow. I'm going to share a little bit of the raw vegan uh, thing. So the whole reason that you're supposed to eat raw vegan, you know, if you believe in this sort of thing, is that uh, not cooking things makes uh, has make, keeps the enzymes alive. The food's alive, and therefore fruit, food's alive, therefore it's more healthy for you. The vegan argument is an argument against animal proteins, and you know, either for moral reasons and also for health reasons. So it's a combination of like moral and health, health reasons. Now, here's here's the thing: I don't believe it. I just don't believe it. Like, first of all, you make your own enzymes. You make your own enzymes. We make our own enzymes. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like, you produce your own enzymes. I don't see where consuming something whose enzymes are preserved is necessarily going to be uh, that much more beneficial in general, right? Now, even assuming that you need to consume all sorts of raw enzymes, even if enzymes are good for you, even if they are necessary, right, there's nothing to say that every scrap of food that you consume has to be teeming with these enzymes, right? Mm -hmm. Also, there's plenty of things that aren't heated that don't have enzymes in them. You know what I mean? Like, it has to have enzymes. It has to be, like, you know, a living thing. So, like, why why your, your salt needs to be particularly raw, which they care about. You know what I mean? It's like, I don't understand. And why every last damn thing, because it's been shifted from the enzymes are good to cooked foods are toxic. Like, that's where the shift has taken place. Another thing that I don't believe. So let me just say this before I even get started. Um, there are some people who, who think, that, by the way, eating raw vegan, I know I'm not supposed to make it seem post-apocalyptic, but it is a, a hardship. It is a huge hardship for someone who doesn't normally do it. You know what I mean? Especially if you have two incredibly picky kids. Now, I wasn't able to cook or prepare a raw vegan for the kids because they weren't having it. They had like one or two nights of raw vegan. I, I, Jen, my wife, sometimes went into the raw vegan with me, but I, you know, yesterday I made her hamburgers while I ate raw vegan. 
uh, I ended up actually like like you know okay well I'll, I'll get into it one they, they say that you get this uh, that you get more energy when you're eating raw vegan I felt I am what we call a very energetic non-athletic guy right I have a lot of energy but I'm not athletic uh, and I felt like I got hit over the head with a hammer with this diet because I lost all I lost all of my energy I was passing out tired at night I was kind of grumpy during the day. Now, I, I talked to someone, they're like, well, you need to eat it for a couple of weeks to get the effect. Was, well, if I need to eat it for a couple of weeks, are you sure you're not just going into some sort of starvation euphoria and thinking you have more energy, right? I mean, it is true, you do lose weight on this diet, right? I did lose some weight on this diet, uh, but, you know, and, and, and for that, it's probably effective. If your only goal is to lose weight, your choices are so constricted and your body's ability to process what's going on, more on that later, like your body's ability to process what's going on is sufficiently reduced that you will, I mean, at least in the one-week period, who knows if you maintain it for a long time, lose a lot of weight. I also feel like I've lost a lot of muscle mass. I don't know that I have uh, less energy, whether it's just because I have less energy, but I feel significantly weaker than I did, uh, like physically weaker than I did a week ago. So, you know, I, I consumed what I consider to be a fairly healthy all-around diet based on the, diet, the dietetic principle of eat everything in moderation. Uh, I prepare most of my own food or eat good food, so, uh, and, you know, I think a hamburger is healthy, right? I and mean, that's my feeling. So this is not a diet that, uh, I would say that you should go on for – I don't believe it's healthier, that's what I'm saying, than, than the, my diet that I normally have. It's not just that it's a hardship. I don't believe it's healthier. Even if it were easy to do, I would not do it by choice, right? So that, that's, that's said. Um, you are going to get in a very good relationship with your toilet if you follow this diet. Let me just tell you, this stuff flies through you on this diet. You can't – like there's no getting around it. You know what I mean? It's it's uh, It's – it's crazy, and, and, and it's also extremely expensive. Now, it doesn't matter. Like, this is not an argument against it, but it doesn't seem to me to be like a diet. This is not an argument against it, but it's not an argument for uh, an, uh, a diet for the people. Everything costs eight bucks, like everything. Like a little thing of, of dip, eight bucks. A little thing of crackers, eight bucks. Anything that's raw vegan, go to the store, look at it. Look at what it costs. Eight bucks. You know what I mean? Like maybe you can get like a little tiny bar or snack of something that's less. But unless you are just straight up consuming raw fruits and vegetables. And by the way, if you eat nothing but raw fruits in the morning, you crash. You get a sugar high and you crash like a mother. You know what I mean? It's just like you're and, – and, and you know, I'm probably a little rambling today because I'm still in the raw, in the raw vegan mode. I had – uh, one good meal at Pure Food and Wine, Sarma Melon Guys' restaurant. I called her because I was like, I just can't deal with this anymore. I have to have someone else do this for me. I went in. But their meals are extremely, extremely labor-intensive. You know, I had had these high hopes that I was going to be able to make a lot of really interesting stuff raw vegan, and my time just ran out, and I had to do it anyway. So my rotary evaporator is packed up, so I couldn't do any low-temperature, uh, you know, brandies that, you know, are raw vegan, even though they're, they're delicious. I've had them before. I know they're good. I didn't get to make the, you know, the raw vegan black sapote ice cream that I wanted to get, but but all of these things are very very they're very um, they're, they're esoteric. You know what I mean? It'd be hard to do this in the real life. What you end up actually eating is a boatload of pineapple, like blueberries, dried fruits, and then avocado, tomato, sauerkraut salads for dinner. I mean, and 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 you know, uh, I feel I f the whole week I've been feeling like. Um, I don't know, like I'm like I'm just kind of trudging along, waiting for it to be over. Like you know, I'm not I'm not myself. So I I I'm glad I did it. I have the ex experience of it. It's not for me. I don't necessarily think uh, that I'd, I'd recommend it to anyone. I think it's incredibly expensive unless you are very have a lot of time to plan 
uh, to do it. So that has been my raw food experience. What do you think, Nastasha? I think that's too bad, Dave. Well, have I been incredibly mean? I only dealt one day with you. This is the second day. Was that was I mean? The yeah, first? you were you were an asshole. Uh, you're not allowed to say that on the air. That's you know, this is a family program. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. You know, you know, you, Nastasha says one thing and comes out, and it's. And it's a curse word. Anyway, why don't we go to our first commercial break and we'll come back. Uh, call in your questions too. 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128. Cooking Issues. Radio Network is about to celebrate the 100th episode of The Main Course with Patrick Martins and Katie Kiefer. The Main Course has welcomed talent that ranges from Temple Grandin on animal handling to Eric Asimov, the New York Times wine critic. Chefs and farmers, distributors, and restaurateurs, everyone who is involved in the food industry, gets to put their two cents in on how and why we eat what we eat. Check out the archives for more information on fast... Check out the archives for more information on the fascinating roster of guests that have graced the table for the main course. And be sure to tune in to the 100th episode, Sunday, June 6th, at noon, on the Heritage Radio Network. Hello, and welcome back to Cooking Issues. Dave Arnold calling all of your questions to 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128. So, Nastasha, we have a column coming out in Eater, tomorrow. the blog, tomorrow, supposedly. And... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and that uh, that's going to basically be the same as the as the radio show, just in uh, blog format, separate from the cooking issues blog, mm-hmm. which you know we I hope to get my my raw vegan post up soon, along with all the other fifteen posts that I have in backlog that I haven't written. But I am now uh, on with Eater. We're going to do I think weekly where we answer questions. So some of these questions that uh, that I've gotten by email, I might if I don't have time on the radio show, I might defer and answer them on the Eater blog. And you, of course, you can. Put your questions to the Eater blog now instead of having to email Nastasha and will get emailed to me. Some of them will get answered on the air and some of them will get answered on the Eater blog. What do you think, Nastasha? Yeah. So we're thinking of calling it, uh, what, we're, what are we calling it? Issues Cooking with Dave. Issues, issues Cooking with Dave? Yes. Uh, nice. Yeah, nice. You like that? Issues Cooking with Dave? Yeah. Mm, yeah, great. Okay. Uh, Marty Yu uh, wrote in. He says, uh, he doesn't deep fry that often. I'm sorry, Marty. You should deep fry more often. Uh, I don't deep fry that often. I'm looking for ways to preserve my fry oil. Online, I saw some articles about rosemary extract being an effective antioxidant, especially a product called Inolens 4. Do I have any experience with this product? I couldn't find a way to obtain any. And do you know if it's available uh, to consumers through uh, any sort of hippy-dippy uh, health food? Uh, store no, uh, I I hadn't heard of that in fact, uh, but I did look it up and rose. You know, it's basically uh, that's the kind of trade name, and I don't know where you can I don't know where you can get it. But the actual thing that you, it's in rosemary that's being used as an antioxidant is uh, I'm going to pronounce it incorrectly here is uh, carnosic acid, right? So carno- carnosic acid is derived from uh, rosemary. There's a large amount in it. I assume it's in any kind of rosemary oil or extract that you can purchase um, on 
you know, in Whole Foods or any one of those other stores. The, the problem is, is that the one that they use is an antioxidant in oil, and apparently it is a fairly uh, effective anti- antioxidant to prevent rancidity. Um, the problem with it is, is that they deodorize it, completely deodorize it, so it no longer smells like rosemary when they when they add it. Uh, so you, if you add it, and, and they're adding it in fairly small amounts, I don't know what percentage of rosemary extract that you buy in a store is gonna is gonna have, uh, you know, is gonna be the you know the, the actual antioxidant, but um, it, you know it's in the parts per million kind of range. The, the question that I wasn't able to answer it it, it definitely stops um, rancidity development and storage, right? Uh, you know, in the breakdown of the uh, of the you know in, into free fatty acids on storage, but I, I haven't been able to find that much information yet on the frying temperatures, whether or not it basically withstands frying temperatures and will actually help you at those temperatures prevent oxidation breakdown, uh, you know, of the of the lipids those kind of temperatures. But it's very interesting, so it might be fun to drop. And there's it's also by the way in sage, not just in rosemary, and there's lots of antioxidants in sage and rosemary. But it might be interesting to, to go to Whole Foods, buy some of this rosemary oil, put a couple drops in, and then do a side by side kind of temperature abuse. It would be a little hard to it'd be a little hard to do it completely accurately because um, you'd have to ramp you'd have to ramp the temperatures up and down the same in two baths of oil, which would be difficult unless you had it in like a third bath of oil and ramping it up and down. So it'd be a difficult experiment to kind of do unless you were unless you had a professional lab. But it's it seems uh, it seems interesting. Uh, so if it was going to work, I would say that just rosemary oil should do the trick. But again, no experience with it. But it sounds interesting. Yeah. 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 Rosemary oil. Mm, rosemary oil. Uh, maybe Cesare can do that. Maybe. You think? Yeah, maybe. Cesare Casella, you know, our friend the chef, like, basically has rosemary growing out of his pocket for many uses at any time. He has rosemary coming out of everything, right? Like, rosemary out of every orifice. The man is like, the man, the man sprung from a rosemary, a rosemary bush. Um, anyway. Okay. Uh, Mike Anonymous, which I like that name. Mike Anonymous writes in, he has two questions. One, uh, one's on meat and the other's on popcorn. So, meat. Uh, I'm trying to buy all my meat from local uh, farmers, and that usually means that it's frozen. Unfortunately, that is true because they don't sell it as fast. They don't have the pipeline out, so they slaughter it, maybe hang it, hopefully, then freeze it and have it for sale. That's just that's just the way it works because they just don't have product all the time, and they can't you know get it out of the pipeline that fast. Uh, my general question is: Is the rule about not refreezing meat an issue of safety or quality? or both. More specifically, my question is, can meat be refrozen after defrosting and manipulating? Two specific examples he's thinking of, can he defrost a pork shoulder, make a sausage, Italian for example, and then refreeze it uh, in a suitable size? And the same question goes for dumpling fillings and other ground pork products. Can he defrost a rack of ribs? Uh, thinking of uh, McGee's oven method for barbecue ribs and refreeze them after cooking. Good shout out to McGee. And refreeze them after cooking. He would like to cook several racks and stash them away for a future meal. Okay, it is not a safety issue, Mike. It is a quality issue. Every time you freeze meat, um, the meat is dehydrating uh, as it as it freezes. Water is leaving the cells, especially the way you freeze in a normal home freezer. Water is leaving the cells, and then the, also the ice crystals that are formed can puncture those cells. So that when it rehydrate, when it thaws out, it essentially has to rehydrate. And if it doesn't rehydrate uh, 100%, or if the cells are damaged too much, you get a huge what's called drip loss. You get a lot of liquid dripping out of out of the meat. So you, you're going to see like the sack with a lot of liquid liquid dripping out of it. And the more times you repeat the cycle of freezing and thawing, the more you break down um, the tissue and the more liquid you're going to lose. In fact, that is a a technique that, you know, people use to break apart cells is freeze-thaw, 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 freeze-thaw. Now, 
Assuming that when the meat thaws, it doesn't drip like a lunatic and it was frozen well the first time, right? By the way, but back on safety for a second. Freezing is not – it arrests bacterial growth, but it does not kill the bacteria, right? So as long as you have the product safe – the whole time, and then you cook it, refreezing it is not is not an issue. Even if you thaw it completely and then refreeze it completely, as long as you didn't temperature abuse the product, the product is going to remain safe, okay? So the safety concerns are the same safety concerns you would have with, with anything else. The freezing itself doesn't alter the safety of it, okay? Um, now, uh, if you take a product that's cooked, like really cooked, like a stew or a braise or something like that, the, the cells are pretty much cooked anyway, and so you could probably freeze it after that procedure and then, uh, you know, like, you know, cook it and then freeze it after that procedure without too much of a quality loss, especially if you were going to freeze it in something like a vac bag or, or like a very, like, closed Ziploc where there's no oxygen. You're going to want to keep the oxygen out because you're not going to want it to go rancid during the, the second freezing, and you're not going to want a chance for the, the uh, moisture on the inside to be able to sub sublimate out or recrystallize on the outside and get freezer burn. But as long as you do, do those two things, you might get some quality loss on refreezing. I mean, I'm not going to say that you won't get a quality loss, but I would say that you would probably get less quality loss on something that was cooked and then uh, after cooked, portioned and refrozen. So, you know, it's, it's all a question of whether or not you get a result that, that you like. I mean, I think it's optimal to not have to freeze if you, if you don't have to, especially if, you, you know, your home freezer is not very good, but sometimes there's just no choice. You might want to try a very fast freeze by bagging and then putting the bags into a very heavy brine and uh, ice solution, and that'll drop it like a rock, freeze it really quick. But um, and I think McGee also posted some stuff on that online. But it's just like you would do for ice cream. Just make sure that the salt can't get to your food and the water can't touch your food. We have a caller. Oh, we have a caller? Mm -hmm. All right, caller. Uh, I'll get back to your popcorn in a minute, Mike Anonymous. Uh, caller, you're on the air. Hi, I'm Marcus from Venice Beach. And I just have a question about uh, different salumis. You know, you have the sopressata, the different types of salumis. And I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about that. You know, um, I know it's a very broad topic, but... Well, what, what, what in particular do you want to talk about with it? Well, you know, you have the sopressata, you have the, the salami. Um, what, are, what makes the difference in time and, and so on in recipe? All right, well, I mean, the recipes... All right, so if we're talking like a, a, Italian products, I mean, they're all, they're all extremely different, right? So the, the, fundamentally, let's say we're just going to deal with pork products, right? So when you're starting with pork products, like the first thing you're going to choose is kind of what assuming you all have the same quality of pork, is going to be your fat-lean ratio, right? And then how finely the parts are going to be cut up, right? So you can go all the way to like an emulsified product like with a mortadella or something like that where it's basically emulsified fats and, and, and meat you know, and, and uh, muscle. Or like very coarse, like most of the super side, uh, we call it, hey, in New York, we call it super side. Anyway, like uh, most of the stuff that I get, you know, it's, uh, it's fairly coarse, right? Down to something like, uh, you know, like a like the hunter sausage and the cacciatore sausages that are a little bit in between. So then you have like a, what the fat lean ratio is and then how, how they're, they're cut up. The next most important thing for, the, for these kinds of products is the spice and or sometimes wine mixture that's added to them, right? So that's where a lot of the characteristic uh, stuff is going to 
come into play. The, ne- the next thing after that is then how much they're needed by hand. So some of the stuff that we think of as uh, traditionally, like if you go to a deli and say salami, right? That they, they, they they're ve- or they're very finely bound together. It's because they've been kneaded with salt, so they bind together and form a very kind of uh, you know compact uh, like mass. And they're usually fairly finely chopped. Whereas you'll get some coarser products um, that, uh, and I'm not even talking about whole muscle cuts like, uh, like you know, copas or anything like that. So it's like, um, so the coarser ones tend to be not needed as much, so they don't pack together as much. And then the the next step after that, obviously, is what size you pack in. So the thinner something that is going to be packed in, the the shorter the drying time, but therefore also, to my opinion, sometimes the less complex the taste. Right? Then there, there's so many steps. The next step after that is is well, a lot of times these guys, like in Italy or in a lot of places that aren't commercial, they'll they'll do what's called wild. They'll get a wild fermentation going because these sausages, aside from usually in the U.S. anyway, adding some uh, nitrites to it to kill botulism. The word botulism, by the way, is derived from the Latin for kind of sausage because you can get botulism in these things if they're not uh, cured, you know, cured properly. So the nitrites are in there. Uh, to prevent that, but they the so they have salts and nitrites to prevent that. But then also bacteria are growing in there, and the bacteria that grow in there drop the pH and make it acidic. That's where the tart, tw- tangy nature of uh, of these sausages come from. So the temperature of fermentation and what kind of bacteria are in that also make a huge difference on the type of uh, product you're going to get. And so. The combination of all of those things together, then along with you know the, the environment, its age, the microflora in the place where it's aged, are what are going to give you all the different kinds of results. Do you, you know what I'm saying? I mean, and that's a, you know that's in a nutshell basically what's going on with most of the with most of the the cut up products and their differences. Does that make sense? You there? I lost him. Anyway. I hope that's what he wanted to talk about. That's making me dang hungry, though. I could use some salumi <laughs> right now. Man, I could use some salumi. Oh, my goodness. Anyway, did that answer the question? I hope so. What do you think? Did it make sense? I think that was great. Yes? All right, good. See, Jack? Jack has a good answer, whereas Nastasha sits here, calls well, me the an guy a-hole. hung up. Yeah, Nastasha calls me an a-hole so on the air, and then the like, question. I don't know, I wasn't listening he, to what you were saying up. anyway. He All right, hung right. up. Maybe it was All right. right answer. Mike Anonymous calls in, uh, writes in with popcorn question. He goes, what's your go-to method, high or low heat, pan with oil, microwave, or other? I make it in a saucepan with oil, heat it over high until a few kernels pop, add the remainder, and turn the heat down a little. I use a splatter screen instead of a cover, as excess steam seems to make it chewy. Uh, I make it regularly, but have difficulty with uh, consistently excellent popcorn. My problems are occasionally chewy, not light and fluffy uh, corn and varying levels of pop kernels. I buy my corn from a local co-op in small quantities, so as far as I know, it is fresh. I've read about people who cook it over lower heat, but that doesn't seem right to me, nor does it seem right to me, Mike Anonymous. Now, uh, I haven't had any experience with uh, buying popcorn from a co-op, local co-op. Um, you might have some issues there because popcorn is pretty tweaked out. Like you know, not that I, I, I have nothing for or against the you know the, the good folks at uh, you know whatever it is Orville Redenbach or whatever, but certain popcorn varieties uh, are, are much better poppers. And, and the the popcorn that's left over, they're called uh, I believe they're called widows. 
the ones that don't pop, oh, the yeah. little, little kernels at the bottom that don't pop. I believe they're called widows. I used to know that. There's two basic kinds of put, uh, popcorn. There's the butterfly shape that we're used to, and then there's the, I forget what it's called, I think mushroom, which is the one that they use for caramel coating because it has a larger surface area and doesn't break apart. But usually we're eating butterfly popcorn. Um, it's got a, a, you know, they're fairly consistent, but they're grown to be popcorn. So there is a huge difference among varieties and the one you get maybe you like the taste but maybe you don't get them all popped i don't know as for the my favorite technique like by far and away my favorite technique is the whirly pop the whirly pop is basically a lidded hinge uh with uh, a wheel on it that keeps the thing agitated while while you spin it they're like 30 bucks um and you just oil and whirly pop turn it on uh, not so high that it's going to scorch, and you just keep turning until the stuff pops. It's got steam vents in it, so the steam seems to leave. I've never had a problem with popcorn being chewy in that. It's also a fantastic first coffee roaster if you want to roast coffee in a Whirly Pop. Uh, do you know what I'm talking about, Whirly Pop? Does this make sense, Nastasha? Sort of. You know, it's got the wooden handle on it, and it's got like a little gear on the top, and it goes down, and it's got a little wire that moves around and keep this, keeps the popcorn moving on the bottom. Mm-hmm. And that's what I use. Uh, almost exclusively until my mom decided that what she was going to get me for Christmas was a, a movie-style popcorn machine that is like, you know, it, it's meant for homes, but it's big enough to be in a movie theater. It takes up my whole apartment, but the kids fell in love with it, so now that's in my house. And that works on the same principle as the Whirly Pop. It's just a smaller uh, it's a smaller container than the, than the Whirly Pop. It's basically, and that's the way most of the pro-batch things work. They have a an agitated rod with a, a loose-fitting flap-up lid with steam vents that allow the steam to leave so that the steam can leave while it's going. Um, you know, the popcorn kernels themselves should be well above the boiling temperature. So once it leaves, the steam's going to want to leave. Uh, spatter screen, you might have some issues with uh, oil getting out or problems. I don't know. I mean, it doesn't sound like you do. But the Whirly Pop, if you make it often, get the freaking Whirly Pop. Just go buy it. You're not going to regret it. And then you can start roasting coffee as well. What do you think? Yeah, it's good. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, uh, we have a question in from Stephen Garrett regarding pressure cookers. Hey, longtime reader of the blog and listener. Thank you, Stephen. I finally got my hands on a pressure cooker, a Cuisinart pressure cooker, electric model, which got christened with a pork shoulder for pulled pork. As I've never used one before, I was wondering if you had any tips, techniques, or recipes to fully utilize the machine. Uh, I love the look of your egg bread and was wondering how it is done and is there liquid in the pot. Regards, Steve from Wellington, New Zealand. Okay, Steve. Um, I know a lot of people. Jeffrey Steingarten is one who loves his Cuisinart electric pressure cooker. I, what I don't know is what the actual pressure on the Cuisinart is because the one failing of, of electric pressure cookers is they don't uh, necessarily tell you what the pressure level on it is, right? So hopefully the Cuisinart runs at 15 pounds per square inch, which is going to, you know, uh, which is what you know all standard uh, pressure cookers run at, but not all electric pressure cookers. So if it runs at 15 psi, it's going to work just like a regular pressure cooker does for anything else. The great thing about an electric is you don't have to worry about throttling the, the gas up and down. And, it, and you rarely, I think if ever, I've never heard it really scorch, have big scorching problems on the bottom of the bowl because you're not using a, a high, high heat. Plus, you know, it doesn't take up a burner. It doesn't heat up the kitchen appreciably. So supposedly they're fantastic, although I've never really used um, that one. The, the interesting thing about the egg bread, we don't add any extra liquid to it. I would add some uh, to the recipe. I would add a pinch of sugar or soy, not too much or it'll burn. Uh, but you actually don't need to make it in a pressure cooker. You can make it in a steamer, we found out later, um, because a chef randomly did it in a in a steamer instead of in a pressure cooker and it worked just as well the pressure cooker will work but you can do that thing just in a uh, in a steamer and it uses its own liquid it's just egg yolks uh, baking powder uh, salt 
uh, sugar or soy uh, and just beaten together and then uh, not even a lot, just like basically mixed together and then put into ramekins and steamed. You can pressure cook it. Here's what I would do with the pressure cooker. First of all, I hope the Cuisinart, I'm not sure, is non-venting. In other words, it doesn't produce steam when it's working. It's basically sealed or produces very little steam. In which case, you can use it to make some fantastic stocks, especially reinforced stocks and like triple stocks. So if you get bones, you can do a triple stock, i.e. Uh, you know, a fresh set of bones to get this incredibly st- rich stock in like an hour. Secondly, even if it does vent uh, from you know the guys at Modernist Cuisine, they seal their stock in mason jars. So they can do basically the work of sealed stock in small quantities in jars without having a vented pressure co- uh, without having a non-venting pressure cooker the one I have is a Kuhn Recon it's expensive and also not electric so th- that's very interesting also garlic pressure cooked garlic I do it in milk typically uh, blend it with uh, for about tw- I do it about 20 minutes then blend it with oil that's a great pizza sauce you can pressure uh, Nils and I are doing a demonstration in, in Texas I'm flying out to Texas later this afternoon and uh, we're doing ramps which are you know wild you know, allium things from the U.S. Uh, we're doing a pressure cook ramp ice cream. Uh, you can do onion ice cream. You can pressure cook uh, horseradish and then puree it. You can pressure cook, um, like I say, onions. Any one of those things can be modified. Pressure cooked. Did we ever put this stuff on the blog? Pressure cooked uh, mustard seeds. You pressure cook them in. You first you blanch them in water, then you pressure cook them in vinegar, and then add sugar afterwards. Toss it, and you get these like awesome, like they're almost like mustard seed caviar. The one thing, uh, don't add a lot of. If you add high sugar things are going to get really dark really fast because the sugar is going to be an even higher temperature so you might get some scorching that's why i add the sugar to things like the mustard seeds afterwards so that they inflate properly and they and they don't you know get too brown another great one is uh hameen eggs which are the eggs that turn brown because of the maillard reactions that happen at low temperatures just put whole eggs hard boil them uh, if, I don't know if you can unseal it and let it boil. If not, like bring water to a boil with the eggs. Let it, let it hard boil normally for like you know six minutes or so. Then put the hot water and the eggs in the pressure cooker. Pressure cook it for about an hour. And when they're done, hopefully they didn't break. When they're done, you peel them and the, and the whites are are kind of dark nutty brown and have like a toasted kind of aroma. When you cut it, the yolks have a chicken liver kind of a chicken liver kind of aroma. It's pretty cool. So these are some good things to do. Uh, and obviously it's really great for fast braises like like pork shoulder. The one thing I have to caution you against is don't add a lot of extra liquid because you're not going to evaporate and reduce a lot of extra liquid. You should you should put in your wine first and then uh, and then reduce it down so that it uh, you know you get rid of the, the kind of alcohol aroma you want to get off of it and then reduce like somewhat or pull the product afterwards and then reduce it, reduce the stock. But I would definitely start with less liquid than you than you're used to, uh, and also you're going to get a richer, meatier taste. But the texture is going to be different because the fibers are going to be broken apart a little more, and it's because it's cooked at a higher heat. It's you know overcooked, overcooked in a technical sense, but usually quite delicious. I actually like braises. I did a, a chili in a pressure cooker that was awesome, awesome. Anyway, I uh, hope that answered your question. And uh, get back to us and tell us tell us how it worked. We want to go to one more commercial break. Let's go to one more break and come back. Call in your questions too. 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128. Cooking issues. Some call me the gangster of love. Some people call me Maurice. Because I speak of the pompous of love. People talk about me, baby. Say 
I'm doing you wrong, doing you wrong. Well, don't you worry, baby, don't worry, 'cause I'm right here, right here, right here, right here at home. Welcome back to Cooking Issues. So I see Nastasha gave me at least one decent Steve Miller song, along with punishing me not only with a raw vegan diet for a week. But giving me the absolute worst Stephen Miller song. I wanted a comparison song. of the Stephen well, Miller. Right, I mean, it's unbelievable that Abracadabra was written by the same person or same people that wrote, you know, the Joker. Right? <laughs> yes. I mean, I look, I'm never, I was never a huge Stephen Miller guy growing up, but I gotta respect it. I mean, that's like, you know what I mean? Like that's real song. That's real deal. That's did real he, deal did he say I'm a gangster of love or something? He, like he that? is. Yeah. I, I think that was the lyric. Although some people do call him Maurice. <laughs> <laughs> you know, known by many names. But the but Abracadabra has got to be the worst the worst damn song in, in the whole world. Uh, anyway, thank you for the quadruple punishment, Nastasha. Thank you so much. Uh, okay, uh, Brian Garrick uh, wrote in with a, a nixtamal and alkali question in general. Uh, he read the article on nixtamalization in the blog, and he loves saying that word as much as we do. It is a great word, nixtamal, nixtamal. Uh, I'm int- oh, and by the way, if in case you don't know what the heck we're talking about, that's the process of taking a, a, a base, like calcium hydroxide is, is a classic, uh, and then cooking uh, corn in it, and uh, it makes a characteristic a kind of a flavor and texture f- uh, for masa dough for making tortillas. So you get that awesome, I mean, it's just great. The base basically breaks up the outside of the corn kernel, makes it easier to grind, prehydrates it, um, it changes the texture of it, the flavor, fantastic. Read the article on nixtamalization because unfortunately I'm not going to have the time to go through the entire rigmarole here, but uh, we love it. Anyway, he's interested in making pretzels and possibly other things with basic solutions. Can you give me the down and dirty on all this stuff? It seems like baking soda is too weak and you already covered calcium hydroxide with nixtamalization. Lye, which is sodium hydroxide, seems too dangerous per my article, and I agree that it is. I still use it at school, but I won't use it at home because I have kids at home. If I didn't have kids at home and it was properly labeled, I would do it, but I'm not having that in my house with the kids. Uh, lye seems too dangerous as per your article, but what is uh, but is what pretzels traditionally require? What about McGee's article about um, baking 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 soda? So you take baking soda and you, and you turn it from um, sodium bicarbonate into sodium carbonate. Um, what about McGee's and go look it up? It's a great article. What about McGee's article about baking baking soda to convert it from sodium bicarbonate to sodium carbonate? Does that really work? Does it make a solution stronger? Is it safe? And what about the stuff I found at the Chinese market? There's a bottle of clear liquid labeled potassium carbonate and sodium bicarbonate solution, and they also have some white crystals of borax, which are labeled not food safe, but are right next to the spices. So what's safe and what's not? I don't want to poison myself or others. And as a final note, how does Adderes make fossilized the fossilized veggies? in Spain, like salsify with calcium. What's the reaction going on there? Is it the same as the banana that we cook with calcium hydroxide? And is there any other fun applications? Well, Brian, in San Francisco, uh, a lot of questions there. I'm going to try and hit them in the little amount of time that I have uh, left. Um, He is using calcium hydroxide. Uh, I haven't had them, by the way, so I don't know specifically, but I have talked to people that have had uh, adoreses, the vegetables that are done this way. I think also um, uh, Renny Redzepi at Noma uses this technique. And they're uh, basically firming up the outside of vegetables uh, using, um, using, they use calcium hydroxide to to basically cross-link the the pectin there. 
and that's what's going on, calcium cross-linking of pectin. They're usually done in conjunction with heat treatment, uh, which activates uh, the enzyme inside, uh, the, uh, inside the vegetables that causes it to happen, which is pectin methyl esterase. And so the combination of calcium and the heat uh, activating the pectin methyl esterase makes a very strong outside shell, uh, and then uh, the inside basically is allowed to get mushy in the outside firm. Now, what I do with a banana is I inject calcium hydroxide into the banana, and the injection of calcium hydroxide makes the banana firm all the way through. We've recently done it without the calcium hydroxide by injecting with uh, just calcium and then heat treating it and getting a similar result. But that's that's what's going on with, with those, uh, and you can do those at, at, you know, at home. It's the exact same thing that goes on with the banana, uh, which is you know traditionally done in uh, Thai cooking or their Asian cooking. So yes, that's a very good thing. That's calcium hydroxide, really lots of different forms of calcium will do that for you. Now, borax is a, used as a food ingredient in other countries, but is not legal for food use here in the U.S. Now, I don't know what the specific health problems with it are, right? But there is food-grade borax. For instance, caviar is treated with borax. It's a, it, it affects the texture in a way that I'm not really, don't really understand. Borax is, I think, uh, I believe it's a, it's a borate like sodium, two sodiums, and then borate, which is like, uh, I think, four borons and uh, tetraborate, I think. Anyway, and, but it's, uh, it, it's used as a texture modifier, but also as a preservative. So in caviar, they'll add a little borax, and to fish roe, they'll add borax to it as a preservative. And I read on Wikipedia, so take it with a grain of borax. <laughs> but, um, well, this part of it, that, that our caviar that we get here in the U.S. is more highly salted because borax isn't allowed to be added to it. But it's definitely used in, uh, in other cultures as, I've never used it, as a firming agent and as a, as a preservative. Um, borax, if you can get a hold of it, is also the cool stuff that you mix with Elmer's. It's, it's, a, it, it's an agent that helps polymerize things, make larger po- uh, polymers. So I was finding a lot of articles on using borax, borax to, to make uh, larger f- like food polymers, but not I couldn't find anything specific for you know, normal use. But if you mix it with Elmer's glue, you can make slime. Borax and Elmer's or glue putty, mixed right? together. Silly putty is, I think, different. Like PV, polyvinyl alcohol is the is the glue is the what glue Elmer's white glue is. And if you add borax to it, it polymerizes and turns to polymerized PVA, which is slime, you know, gack or whatever. That stuff that's in the that's you know that slime, mm. which I'm extremely interested in because I want to make a food grade slime. I'm working on it, but I haven't fixed it yet. Okay, the potassium carbonate and sodium bicarbonate solution that you see is Consway. That's what's used to make um, that's what's used to make the stretchy yellow alkaline noodles, right? So you add that. That's a basic solution, and that's very classic in Chinese uh, you know recipes. Your flour is going to go very yellow, and it's going the noodles are going to have a lot of bite to it, right? It's going to really uh, enhance the kind of gluten snappiness of those things. That's the Consway that's typically used for, for the yellow alkaline noodles, although I don't know how basic it is. It might also be useful for pretzels. I'm not sure. That stuff is also mistakenly sometimes sold as lye water, even though it doesn't contain lye, which is everything. Everything's got to be, Brian, everything's got to be a pain in the ass. You know what I'm saying? Anyway, oh, you can't say that. Like, ass is different. It's a donkey. Uh, it makes no sense. You make no sense. All right. Uh, now, the converting baking soda t- uh, to, you know, the sodium bicarbonate to sodium carbonate actually does work and will make a fine pretzel. Lye is traditional. I've never done a side-by-side taste test of lye-boiled pretzels versus uh, sodium carbonate pretzels. Um, I have made sodium bicarbonate pretzels, and they were meh. 
Meh. You know what I mean? Like, like, but I've never done live versus sodium carbonate. McGee's technique definitely does work. You can also tell if it's worked because the weight changes of the sodium bicarbonate because water is being driven off. So you can weigh the sample before and after to verify that you have, in fact, converted it. Use that um, to – is it water that's driven off? Don't or CO2. Uh, I can't remember. Anyway, I can't remember what's driven off. But then uh, you can weigh it and weigh the difference and then use that to make your pretzels, add it, and do the boil. The reason you boil pretzels uh, in a basic solution is because that will radically – first of all, it changes the flavor. It makes it taste like a pretzel and not like, like uh, you know, something else, like a bagel or something like that. You know, because a pretzel is supposed to taste like a pretzel. First of all, pretzels should be freaking twisted. I don't like pretzel sticks. I don't like molded pretzels. I don't like any of these pretzeloids. I don't like, I don't like like fish pret shaped pretzels. I mean, they're okay. They shouldn't be called pretzels. Pretzels need to be twisted because the way they break up. When you eat a pretzel that's twisted, it breaks up in a very specific way. The pretzels are supposed to break up based on the fact that they were a stick of dough that's been twisted into a shape that we know as a pretzel, right? And so, you know, the the middle knot has a different texture from the nubbins. It also bakes differently in different parts, which adds varied uh, texture to it as well. So a real pretzel, and I've taught my kids this since they were about, since they could speak, I could walk up to my kids and say, what's a real pretzel? And they're like, Daddy, a real pretzel is twisted, because that is what a pretzel should be. Anyway, uh, aside from that, it needs the real pretzel taste uh, from the... um, for boiling in ba- in a basic solution. It also, that's in- going to enhance the Maillard reaction. So the reason pretzels are so dark brown is because they have been boiled beforehand in a basic solution. Um, I, but I haven't done lye versus sodium carbonate, but I'm sure the sodium carbonate is going to be good. If you can have lye around, do it. If not, I'm sure sodium carbonate's a fine, fine runner-up. Also, if you are going to make a hard pretzel, please do not add any oil to the pretzel at all. Don't add any oil at all. If you take most pretzels that are bad, even twisted ones or ones on the market, I'm not going to call out Roll Gold as a bad brand of pretzels, but if I did, it's because if you looked at the ingredient label or Bachman, which like would otherwise be a fine pretzel because it's twisted, they're large ones, right? Uh, if you look at the ingredient label, they have oil in it and that reduces the texture of a pretzel from what God intended a pretzel to be, which is delicious, to that of a cracker with a dark brown crust on the outside and salt. And that's not what you want a pretzel to be. All right, now, I have one last thing. I'm going to defer this to the Eater blog as the first one's going to go to the Eater blog. Adam Frost uh, asks a question about legumes and the a, a vegetal taste uh, that legumes have when they're raw. And since, A, I didn't have time to research it thoroughly, and, B, it's time for us to go, Adam, I'm going to answer your question on Eater tonight or tomorrow, but I'm going to have to call McGee to see what, he, see what he thinks, all right? So listen, your pretzels must be twisted, your pretzels must not contain oil, and your pretzels must be boiled in alkaline solution. Cooking issues. Fish. Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening. You got my head all twisted And I just can't get it straight
Nicole Taylor is always the first to talk with new and exciting personalities in the food world on her show, Hot Grease. Check out a little clip. Everything is super sweet in the Heritage Radio Network studios today. We're chatting with Fanny Gerson. Fanny is a graduate of the Culinary Institute of America and the 2011 James Beard Foundation Cookbook Award nominee. Oh, my God. We fry in bed style. We have to talk dough. Donuts. I'm gonna have to say, Fanny. I don't know if you know this. I was definitely the first person in Brooklyn to start talking about it. Did you know that? I, I knew that last time I saw you. Ah, but I didn't know that before. So we have to talk dough. I mean, it, it is it is a bona fide phenomenon in Brooklyn. Uh, I'm so excited to be part of it, I, and I can't believe it. <laughs> you know? I mean, I was just telling you before the show that uh, I think about a month ago I went to dough on a Sunday at two o'clock, and all the donuts. You like what you hear? You can hear Hot Grease every Monday at 3.30 p.m. live on HeritageRadioNetwork.com. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast or check it out in our archives. This is Behind the Scenes Food News with Katie Kiefer. This little nugget comes from Food Safety News, which is a blog that you can get every single day if you want to sign up for it. I love it. And in this one, it says, In what qualifies as ground-shifting news in the food safety world? The U.S. Department of Agriculture today, on Tuesday, lopped 15 degrees off of its recommended temperature for safely cooking whole cuts of pork, aligning it with guidelines already in place for beef, veal, and lamb. Heating steak, roasts, and chops to an internal temperature of 145 degrees Fahrenheit, so long as the meat sits briefly before it's eaten, is enough to ensure its safety, the USDA said. This latest revision for pork comes again on the advice of the FSIS, which is the Food Safety Inspection Service. which says cooking cuts of pork to 145 degree Fahrenheit with a three-minute rest is as safe as cooking them to 160 degrees, the previously recommended temperature with no rest time. So um, now you can have a little bit of pink, juicy pork, even if you're buying commodity pork, which should vastly improve its taste and eating quality. This has been Behind the Scenes Food News with Katie Kiefer.